Our scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his lions. Loins. <laughs> the wolf shall dwell in, with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the f- fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the, f- the ox. The, nurthi- the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weakened child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O wisdom, coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end to the other mightily, and sweetly ordering all things, come and teach us the way of prudence. Jesus, we do ask you to come as wisdom into our life. Um, We are often confused and baffled by the world, by our lives. Um, All of us come in here with big question marks, um, anxious question marks, and we need you to come and teach us uh, the way of flourishing, the way of prudence, the way of wisdom, the way of life. We need you to come and take charge. Uh, You who know all things, you who have ordered all things, uh, would you reorder and re-know us this morning? We ask for you to speak uh, to us um, by your Holy Spirit. Would you speak uniquely uh, into whatever moment we're at this morning? We love you. We're we're thankful for the ways that you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you uh, who know me know that I follow politics as a hobby, Um, and so it's kind of obnoxious. It's really, I shouldn't do it. Um, But I listen to like podcasts on runs and various things, and I call it a hobby because I'm not really super attached to any particular outcome. Um, The last couple years have disabused me of any hope in American politics, and so I really find myself to be pretty politically homeless, neither left nor right, not really excited about anyone, and so mostly I'm just that like Michael Jackson meme, just like eating popcorn, uh, watching um, and enjoying it. Uh, The midterms were this week, uh, and long story short, the results were really confusing. Uh, The Democrats should have gotten shellacked, uh, according to historical precedent, uh, but they did relatively well, and yet Biden's approval ratings are still low. The economy's rough. Ukraine's at war. China's frustrating. There's all kinds of things, and so pundits are really wrestling with what happened, and they're trying to speak confidently. Um, Was it Trump's present? Was it abortion? Who really knows? Uh, Politics um, is confusing. Um, I'm far more engaged and interested in policy discussions versus politics, and so that's why um, I do uh, 
a uh, ballot party. I um, always really enjoy that every year because I think policy is really important, but that also can be super confusing, right? Uh, if you just take a look at San Francisco's troubles of late, we've had some really contentious local elections, and they're all aimed at solving some really massive problems. So we all should have great sympathy for um, our political leaders. Um, if you look at education, homelessness, crime, uh, downtown, insufficient housing, there are such complex issues. And while if you have a conversation about one in isolation, you might come up with some good ideas, um, but then the, that good idea is going to run up against other good ideas um, so often. When you combine them, the solutions kind of run into each other. To fix one is to harm the other. And in that situation, what are we to do? Uh, what one person, uh, what couple people could possibly uh, fix it all? What one party, what one political philosophy, it is too much. And so, again, I just mostly watch from the sidelines with my uh, popcorn. Um, even if I narrow my scope, because you might just think, well, Dave, you're just being too zealous. Like, you, Of course, you can't fix big problems. But even if I narrow my scope to my own life, I still find myself at a loss, right? Like if, if I sort of have all the, all the issues together, just focus on my life. You know, there was that article in the Atlantic Monthly a few months back on why San Francisco is a failed city. I don't know if you read that. Um, and it was really a sobering read because what she did was she took all these conversations that you had separately where I might like talk with you about education and SFUSD, and then I might talk with you about homelessness, and then I might talk with you about the uh, price of housing, and then she just put them all together in one long article. And um, you could do the same thing with my life, right? You could have the same, this, if we like strung all of Maggie and my conversations about the things, the challenges that we're having, where we have one conversation about parenting over here, and we have one conversation about finances, and then we have one conversation about sadness. If you string all of that together, it can be really overwhelming, right? What am I to do? Again, we might have really great ideas uh, to address this problem or that problem in our life, but we find ourselves always running into each other, right? At a loss on how to address it all. And so what is the answer? The book of Job is about a man who is at a loss to explain his circumstances. Uh, pretty much the entire book is him and three friends trying to solve the problem of Job's suffering. His life has fallen apart, and he's trying to figure it out. Why did this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And how can it be made right again? How do we untangle this knot? And the problem of evil is challenging for any religion to answer. Appropriately so. Um, it's a big deal. But I think it's really instructive that the Bible's clearest attempt at an answer to the problem of evil is delivered as a long poem inside a story. Isn't that remarkable that that's the way the Bible addresses evil? Um, in our frustration, we often want a quick answer from God, but the Bible only gives us a really long answer. We want a logical answer, but God gives us this meandering poem. And even then, Job kind of feels like a non-answer. At the end, it kind of feels like God pleads the fifth, 
or he just like won't say. He, he's just like, I'm not going to even answer. Um, now, most of Job is focused squarely on the ins and outs of Job's circumstances, and so he's digging into the uh, details of his life. Was Job actually righteous? And he was. Um, did he deserve his suffering? He didn't. And so if Job was righteous and he didn't deserve suffering, why did he suffer? And the end of the book is sort of like this. Uh, it's a shrug. Um, but there is this curious chapter that sort of interrupts the story in chapter 28. It's this odd interruption where you're not even sure if it's Job speaking or not. It, 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 maybe it is, but he doesn't reference any of the story. It's completely divorced. Um, it's not about anything that's happened thus far. And this little poem, it begins by asking, I guess Job is asking us, to marvel at the depths humanity will go for treasure. Literally, how deep will humans dig for treasure? Take a minute and consider the precious metals on your person. Um, I don't know if you're wearing any silver or gold or platinum, um, diamonds or jewels. And if, if you don't have those, maybe you have a phone or a smartwatch, and inside those, right, have rare metals that operate them. All of that comes from deep underground. It took a tremendous amount of effort and ingenuity to, to raise that up from the earth. And it's amazing when you think about it the treasure that is buried far underneath the earth, and the effort mankind will go to get it. Only mankind, right? Animals don't dig for precious metals, right? There's no animal that is searching and going deep to, to bring gold up from the ground. We only know about these things because of human desire. And so Job 28, 1 through 11, he asks us to consider this. Surely there is a mine for silver, and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. Miners are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows. The falcon's eyes has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man, it's man who puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the stream so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. And what is Job doing? Again, it's totally divorced from the story. Job is here drawing a connection between the worth of an object and the tremendous effort it takes to get it. Tremendous. Think of how many millions of tons of dirt have been dug up in search of jewels, right? Think of how many thousands of miles of tunnels have been opened in search of metal. And Job 28 really says it's all worth it. It's saying that the sapphires are good, that we should dig and search for them. But then here, verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? 
Job has spent 27 chapters trying to figure his life out, trying to search for wisdom. And he's saying, where is wisdom? I have worked so hard. I have dug so deep and I can't find it. Wisdom in scripture is infinitely more valuable to man and yet it is infinitely more inaccessible. Verse 14, the deep says, wisdom is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. It took generations of human intelligence, ingenuity, dedication, and courage to discover the riches hidden in the earth. Um, Rare metals. There's a big debate and fight over rare precious metals, how we're going to drive our cars and things like that. And so it took generations to find that. Not so with wisdom, though. Wisdom is more valuable, but it is so much deeper. It's not materially deeper. It's metaphysically deeper. It is behind a veil. It's deeper than the ocean, deeper than any mine, deeper even than death, Job says. So deep that it is beyond our searching. And it's beyond Job, ultimately, So he cannot put his life back in order as much as he tries. He cannot even adequately explain his circumstances. And that means we really can't explain ours. This is the place we find ourselves in when we consider our politics, when we consider our city, when we consider our relationships in our own lives. We are ultimately at a loss. That's why Ecclesiastes says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's sort of just like a shrug. Even death says in Job that wisdom is just a rumor. And so what is the solution? Where shall wisdom be found? Uh, Something that is hidden um, behind our English translations of Job 28 um, is that the Hebrew word for wisdom in verse 12 and 20 includes a definite article. So you English nerds will know a definite article is the, the, the wisdom. So it's not just wisdom, it's the wisdom. So Job 28, 12, but where shall the wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Job 28, 20, from where then does the wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And that's unusual in the Old Testament. Uh, And so, in fact, later in chapter 28, Job will conclude kind of with a standard uh, Old Testament line about wisdom, about the fear of the Lord. Uh, Job 28, 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And in that case, there's no article. So there's, there's some distinction. So verse 28, it's wisdom without an article referring to general wisdom. And so general wisdom is remember God. Uh, remember God first. And that's true enough. Uh, That is the only thing that Job can do at that point. But there is something different in that earlier poem. There's a deeper wisdom that Job is after. 
The wisdom is more than the fear of the Lord. Uh, the wisdom is the wisdom that, who is at the heart of everything. The wisdom who was with God at the beginning, the wisdom by whom and through whom God created everything. The wisdom is the wisdom who has the power to save us. That's what Job is after. Now, today we're beginning a seven-week Advent series focusing on seven messianic titles from the book of Isaiah. And I didn't come up with these seven titles myself. They are taken from seven ancient Christian prayers called the O Antiphons. And these prayers are traditionally read the seven nights before Christmas at Vespers. Um, so you would read it every night at 5 p.m. or so. Um, but we're going to stretch them out over seven weeks. And I'll be preaching five of them. The last one on December 18th will be something like a caroling service, which will be really fun um, before people travel for the holidays. Um, Georgia's going to preach next week on Adonai. And um, so that's a first for her. So be praying for her as she prepares uh, this week. I'm really excited about that. I've talked with her about where she's going with it. It's going to be great. Uh, the seven prayers are, O Wisdom, O Lord, O Key of David, O Root of Jesse, O Day Spring, O King of the Nations, and O Emmanuel. And I love meditating on these prayers every year because these seven images sound the depths of my need for a Savior. They help me know what to ask for, what to long for, what I need and want in Jesus. What do you need in a Savior? I think I know what I need, but I don't. I think I know what I want, but I don't. None of us really knows what we need or want until it's shown to us, which means we're often easily fooled because the world is constantly showing us things. And we think, oh, that must be what I need. That must be what I want. But then we think about all the bogus saviors that we thought would fix our lives and world, like politicians and businessmen and inventors and gurus, education, revolutions, career moves, technologies, churches, even. But we need so much more than these people, no matter how gifted they are. We need so much more than these plans, no matter how perfect they are, they're not enough. What was the last thing you really thought would make a difference in your life? And did it? The human predicament calls out for a particular kind of Savior. My predicament requires a particular kind of Savior. And when I read these antiphons, they resonate with the longing in my soul. That's what's really beautiful about these metaphors is they, they hit certain parts of us and, and you realize, yes, that is what I want. I need a Savior who's not just wise, but who is wisdom. By whom and through whom all things exist, clear-eyed and knowing, able to disentangle my worlds. I need a Savior who is not just powerful and strong, but who is Lord, righteous, sovereign, and authority worth submitting to. I need one who is the key of David, who is perfectly fit, like a key to unlock the, unlock the unique chains of my bondage, the root that will sprout new life from death, the dawning sun after a dark night, the king of the nations who will finally bring every tribe and tongue and nation and people together under one roof. And finally, 
The only way that all those things come together, I need a Savior who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. This is what the world needs, a Savior who is wisdom, Lord, key, root, Son, King, God. That's what the world needs. That's what the world wants. And I bet if you dug deep into your own soul, below whatever today's needs and wants happen to be, you would find that Jesus is what you want to. That that's really what you're after. A Savior who is not just wise, but who is wisdom itself. Who has the ability to not just explain your life like a guru, but to actually get in there and untangle it and make it right again. Isaiah 11 is a classic Christmas text, and it's no wonder because it describes the Messiah that everyone's after. We all want a leader like this, right? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. If we could describe a leader, this is what we would describe. This is what we're after. If we could describe a renewed world, this is how we would describe it, right? Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, a little child shall lead them. What a beautiful sight that will be, right? A little child leading a calf and a lion and a fattened calf together. The cow and the bear grazing, their young shall lie down together. Who doesn't want to see a cow and a a bear cub just playing together? Um, The weaned child, a nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, Why? Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We have in Isaiah 11 a wise leader who makes a wise world. Now, for context, uh, we'll be in Isaiah most of the antiphons because most of these images are drawn from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah's ministry was before the exile, but the book's earliest readers were probably those who had returned from exile, where they assembled the book and then read it. And they were returning to a Judah in ruins, uh, ruined by foolish and unrighteous kings who failed to follow Yahweh. And while they surely must have been relieved to have left Babylon and be back in their homeland, there probably was some fear too, right? Lord, don't let that happen again. How can we make sure that does not happen again? Send us a king marked by a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Send us a king marked by a spirit of counsel and courage, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, who will judge the poor with righteousness and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That's the king we want. That's the world we want. And it wasn't just... 
a generic desire. It had everything to do with the reason for their exile. Uh, Notice that the wisdom of the Messiah in Isaiah 11 has to do with justice and not know-how. We can really prize leaders with know-how, with expertise, but this is a leader who is wise in the area of justice. He's not simply smart. He doesn't just know a lot of stuff. I don't know if you ever heard people question Jesus' deity by ridiculing his lack of awareness of like modern scientific facts. Um, it's complete silliness, um, first of all, but it also really betrays our obsession with science and our obsession with fact as if that is what the world needs, an expert. But that is not what Israel needed. This is, again, why the context of Isaiah 11 is important. If we don't know the context of our need, then we'll search out the wrong Messiah. It will misdiagnose the problem and go after the wrong solution. And so what is the context of Israel's need? Well, if you sit down and read Isaiah 1 through 10, you'll learn that the nation of Israel did not fall because of failed strategy. Uh, They weren't outsmarted by their enemies. They weren't outgunned or outtrained. According to Isaiah, they fell because they had abandoned Yahweh and his law. And in particular, their culture had been corrupted by social injustice and hypocritical worship. Uh, They ignored God's law. They tolerated an extreme separation between the rich and the poor. And that led to not only the oppression of the poor, but the corruption of the rich, as they just spent all their money on um, luxury and uh, wickedness. And that's why they were exiled. Their exile was judgment against injustice, and that was blasphemy with their lives. And so in that context, the promise of Isaiah 11 makes sense. Send us a king who will not let that happen again who will rule with wisdom, with righteousness, with justice. They needed a Messiah who would run his life and run our lives with knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That was the context of their need. What is the context of your need? Why were you exiled? You need to know if you want saving, right? Because we need to know um, the Savior that we need. Why is your city in ruins? Why is our city in ruins? According to the Bible, the story of Israel is the story of humanity. And so that means we don't need a Messiah who understands science. We don't need a Messiah who builds new technologies. Um, I've wondered recently, because of a few conversations, like if when we get to heaven, all these modern inventions will just go away. I don't know. Like, what if we just got there and suddenly I was a farmer, you know? <laughs> and, um, and that is actually what I needed. What I, what I, um, but I, um, it might all be gone. I don't know. But we don't need a Messiah who builds technologies. We don't need a Messiah who does politics well or economics. That's not the wisdom we need. We idolize these kinds of people today. I do, because that's what I think will fix my world. But that kind of wisdom cannot truly address the world's problems. We're misreading the context. The wisdom we need is the wisdom of justice and righteousness, understanding and the fear of the Lord. Someone who can look into our cities and homes and hearts and disentangle the knots we've made of ourselves. I'm so humbled when I consider the world's problems. Uh, It's such a mess. Um, Isaiah 5 speaks against the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and that continues to be a huge problem in our city and world. And there are certainly moves that we can make to address it, but 
but how do we truly fix it, right? How do we, uh, what can be done to reverse the trend? Um, What's to be done with homelessness in our city? We can read editorials in the paper, we can get opinions, um, but then we, we walk through the tenderloin, we sit down and share a meal with someone who lives in the park, and you just see how deep the problems are. Anyone who says they know how to fix it is lying. Racial inequality, how do we roll back centuries of mistreatment? Uh, reparations isn't a bad idea, but then when you read about how to go about it, it quickly becomes complicated. In all these areas, we can do something, and we should. Our church should live um, lives that picture the kingdom and advance justice. But what we really need is Jesus to come back. That's what the season of Advent is about. Remembering that in spite of all our good work on this earth for justice and healing, what San Francisco really needs is Jesus. An embodied wisdom. In spite of my good work to live faithfully and honorably myself, my failed but diligent and and genuine work, what I need is Jesus. In the flesh. And Advent invites me to spend time remembering my need for a personal Savior, for this Savior, a Savior who is wisdom, Lord, key, root, day, spring, king, and Emmanuel. And just to sit with those metaphors and remember that despite all my striving, what I need is that. And we're taking extra time extending Advent, but I find that I need extra time. Man, if I wait, once Christmas gets rolling and December's here, it feels like it's so hard to hold on to that remembering. And so I'm hopeful that this season is just a time for us to sit and say, yes, that is what I need. Advent is a season of longing for Christ to come again. It literally means coming. That's what Advent means. And Christians historically have spoken about three advents of Christ. And so you have Christ's first advent when he visited us in humility, Christ's final advent when he will visit us in power. Um, But there's also Christ's daily advent to meet us new every day, right? There are places in my heart and life where it's still winter, uh, to use C.S. Lewis's always winter but never Christmas, right? where Christmas hasn't dawned yet in my life, where the good news hasn't quite taken hold, where we're still waiting for for Christ to come. Advent reminds us of our need for Christ to come now and forever. And so for this first antiphon, O wisdom, where do you need Christ to come as wisdom in your life today? Where does that need to be your prayer? Where you don't need him to come and teach you to do something, to instruct you. You don't need a book. Um, You don't need a better theology. You don't need advice. But you need him actually to come and to be wisdom for you. Not to teach you wisdom, but to be your wisdom. Not to give you a solution, but to be your solution. What mess do you need him to disentangle? What trauma, what sin, what broken relationship are you at a loss on how to deal with? 
and you've just like spun it over and over in your head so many times and you can't figure it out, what would it look like for you to not try to figure it out, but just to ask Jesus to come? Just come and be wisdom for me. What loved one suffers in a way that's too complicated to unravel? There are places in my own heart, in my own home, marked by sadness and pain, and I don't know what to do. There are days where you can't tell what's up and what's down, but Jesus can. He can orient us. He is wise. He knows what to do. He has come to make things right and to make me right. And the beautiful thing about the wisdom of God is that you don't have to do anything to receive it. Christ is not a coach to tell you what to do. He has come to do wisdom for you. Salvation in Christ is by grace through faith. You don't have to get trained. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to go anywhere. It comes to you. Romans 10 tells us salvation by faith is not a wisdom that's found on some like guru's mountaintop where you have to take this arduous journey up Mount Everest to get to. Wisdom is not found in the depths of trial where you have to go through some like Indiana Jones kind of experience to get to it. It's right here, Romans 10, 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all it is. This is the wisdom of Christ. It's right here, and it's ours for the taking. It's mine for the receiving. What is wisdom? Confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is wisdom. Like Job says, if we had to dig for it like gold or diamonds, we would never find it. God's wisdom is a wisdom that can only be revealed. After all, who else could have come up with the idea of Christmas? Like, it's, it's a wild story. Um, I have a barber. Many people were commenting on my haircut. Thank you. Um, my barber is not a Christian. Um, he grew up in Hong Kong, though, during the British occupation of Hong Kong, and so he had religious education, um, and he loves the Christmas story. He just thinks it's great, um, a king born in a manger. It is great, and it is otherworldly. It's an otherworldly wisdom where God first comes as a baby in a manger, born to a poor family in a worthless town. He grows up in complete uh, silence for 28, 30 years, and then begins to teach powerfully about the kingdom of God, the description that John was resonating with earlier on on how God divides um, good from bad, uh, sheep from goats. It's wild about how he gives the kingdom to the poor and the weak, how the first shall be last and the last first. It's nonsense in the world. But you love it. You want it. And then, just as it's beginning to gain some momentum, he's crucified. Like a common thief. And this is wisdom? It is. 
This is the wisdom of God. Christ's death and then his resurrection, three days later, he is resurrected. But even then, he ascends, so no one sees him again. And this wild story, this wild man, Christ Jesus of Nazareth, God made flesh, is the wisdom and power of God, 1 Corinthians 1. And you need it. I need it. The world needs it. And mercifully, we can have it. It's ours for the taking. One of my favorite passages in the Bible about God's wisdom comes from Isaiah 1. Um, And in Isaiah, he's just lit into Israel. He tells them that they have blood on their hands and he doesn't want to see them worship anymore. But then in verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I love the invitation. Come now, let us reason together. Who reasons like this? right? Who thinks like this? He's just told them that he despises their worship, but then, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the wisdom of God, mercy, grace, redemption. This is the way of Jesus. And it is our prayer that this Jesus comes. I'll end with the Antiphon, O wisdom, coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end to the other mightily and sweetly ordering all things, come and teach us the way of prudence. Let's pray.